This podcast is proudly produced and presented by the Zoomer Podcast Network, home of great podcasts like Marilyn Lightstone Reads, Idea City on the Air, and The Garden Show. You're listening to an exclusive podcast of Finding Your Bliss with host Judy Liebrach. Heard every Saturday at 1 p.m. on Zoomer Radio. Hi, everyone, and welcome to Finding Your Bliss, the show that helps you find and follow your bliss. I'm Judy Liebrach, and I'm really in awe of our incredible guest today, author Ruth Vallis, who became blind suddenly before the age of three, and she was the youngest pioneer of integration into the public school system in Canada, really blazing a trail for so many to follow. At every stage of her extraordinary life, she defied the low expectations of others and took on such monumental challenges such as biking from Ottawa to Toronto, completing a master's of science degree online before technology accessibility was legislated and so much more. Through it all was her kind and tender, yet tough loving mother Peach, offering encouragement, support and humor to help her daughter overcome life's enormous challenges. So just imagine everyone, if you will, Totally blind as a young woman, Ruth arrived in London, England as a young woman determined to study physiotherapy. She spoke the same language, was independent, and had good mobility skills. As it turned out, it was a lot harder than she ever imagined. But Ruth was determined to succeed and to follow her dreams, and that's exactly what she did. And we're going to find out all about how she did it right now here today. Welcome Ruth Ballas to Finding Your Bliss. Thank you, Judy. I'm just honored and I'm really very pleased to be here. I I have to begin by saying congratulations on your incredible book, Love is Blind. It is a page turner. And as I just mentioned in the green room to you, I couldn't put it down until the wee hours of the morning. And uh, just so recommended. We're going to get really into the book, of course. But first of all, just congratulations on such a stunning achievement. Thank you. Thank you. It's a, it's a wonderful moment when you get to hold a hard copy book in your hands. <laughs> Isn't it? A long time. Isn't it? And smell the, smell the ink and feel yes. the paper and all of that. Yes. Ruth, you weren't even three years old yet. And someone in your family dropped a penny on the carpet and your parents asked you to pick it up. And you felt around the carpet, but you couldn't actually see the penny. And that was their first clue that something was going on with your sight. Can you tell us what happened? Yes, yes, yes. I I dropped the penny. I don't know where I got it from, but I dropped the penny and I instinctively felt around for it. And my father observed that and he pointed at it and I didn't acknowledge the point and I didn't move in the direction. And so he called my mother. And he said, look at this. And they called the doctor and took me. And the doctor gave them, which I think is very shocking news, that I had suddenly and to that point inexplicably gone blind. Mm. And my mother had a sister who was blind. Mm -hmm. But that doesn't mean one expects one's own children to go blind. So it it was shocking. I was about two and a half years old. And the exact date is really unknown. And it they say probably happened in a matter of, of weeks. It was very quick. Do you think it was a virus or some kind oh, of illness that 
oh, they found out eventually what it was. But in fact, we didn't really know until very recently the truth of it. Um, my uh, rheumatologist and ophthalmologist that I was sent to at the time called it Stills disease, which is a very aggressive form of juvenile rheumatoid arthritis. <clears throat> but recently, they, my rheumatologist now says that we're not going to label it because that's not important. It's only important to treat these things. And the truth is there really isn't a label for me. It's just a mixed connective tissue disorder, a little bit like lupus, a little bit like scleroderma. But within my blood, I have something, you know, we have a positive ANA and antinucleic acid. And in my blood, this is probably technological, but for people who might be interested in my blood, it should be one to 40 and mine is one to 640. And they wow. know only in the last couple of years that people who have a very high ANA are likely to be blind. You had many operations and they really tried to fix this. They thought maybe it's a cataract and you can get underneath the cataract. And, 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 and instead what happened was each uh, operation just revealed, uh, not only revealed that it was not going to be fixed, but that it was, um, there was serious stuff going on there. And one doctor was quite blunt about it. You write about this in the book and he kind of made it very clear that, that this was something that you were going to have to live with. What was that? What was that like for you, for your parents to have that sort of that last hope of I'm going to have regular sight? Because I, I know that you have sight in ways that most people will never have. But typical sight, let's call it. What was that like for you when you had that realization? Or at that point, were you just sort of used to what it was? I think there's a couple of things that I, I need to share. One is that I was alone with the doctor when I got that news. I was 17 years old. I had had my fourth eye surgery just before my 16th birthday. And people with perhaps disabilities, people who have diagnoses of breast cancer, things like that, it's not something you can share with other people. There's, there's a moment when one needs to to deal with this alone. And for me, I went, I started going to my doctor's appointments alone when I was around that age, 16, 17, because I just felt that I couldn't share it somehow. And so when the doctor said to me, it's, it's time to come to accept that you will always be blind. And I guess I have a little bit of a defiant spirit hmm. because I didn't take it. I said, well, there's got to be hope. Where there's God, there's hope. And he said, yes, Ruth, but I'm not God. And he said, I have the limited knowledge of someone who has studied a great deal and has a great deal of experience, but I don't have all the answers yet. We're still learning. And so I really didn't want in my heart to say, okay, it's over. I accept that I'm going to be blind. But when you're, when one is 16 or 17 years old, you know, time is forever. And one doesn't think, oh, I'm going to have to get an education. I'm going to have to get a job. I'm going to have to look after myself. You know, until that stage, when you one is a child, one is looked after. And so forever it means nothing. And, and, and look, accepting the fact that not only did I have to accept that I'm blind, but I have to go through life my education, my training, my career, my living and everything in that form, it doesn't really mean a lot. I just felt defiant. Mm -hmm. 
which probably was a good thing because that probably gave you the ability to deal with what you had to deal with, right? It, it it sort of gave you the backbone to just go forth and with hope and with strength and with love, all of the things that really your mom had taught you. And I, I want to talk about her for a moment. Your beloved late mother, who you nicknamed Peach, and she does yes. sound like she was such a peach. She was a peach. Oh, what a, what a remarkable woman. Yes. She worked full time. She took care of four children, was the breadwinner, and looked after you in the most wonderful way. Can you tell us a little bit about your mother, Peach, and the impact she had on your ability to overcome all adversity? Um, yes, my father only worked peace work. He was um, an injured war veteran, and I had four brothers. So there was a lot of children in the home, and she had to be strong. And I think if you look up the definition of strength in the dictionary, you'd see her face because she was very, very strong. She was a very calm person. Hmm. And she took everything in stride. She never would get all flustered about anything. And she was very pragmatic. Okay, this is what we have to deal with it, deal with, so we'll deal with it. And she, I, I think being calm, you'd love her because. The word bliss is not a common word in our vocabulary, but it was one of her favorite words. And the only person I ever heard before you use it was her. Yes, she would she would sit in a rocking swinging chair on our big front veranda with the children playing around on the street, all the neighborhood kids playing hide and seek or tag or whatever. And she would sit there with a cup of tea and she would swing and she would say, this is bliss. Or she would sit in her kitchen window, looking out at our apple tree with the birds hopping around and, and enjoying themselves. And she would say, how can people say there is no God? This is bliss. And I think that was her. She had a calm spirit that and she had an absolutely overwhelming faith in God, just an overwhelming faith in God. And she, and so she always took everything in stride because she felt she was never dealing with anything alone. And I think in this COVID time, so many people lament being alone. And yet, she never, ever felt alone. And I would often ask myself, how would she deal with things right now? And I, I know what she would do. She would just say, get on with it. Don't lament the things you cannot do. Find the things you can do and get on and do them. And that was a mantra she fed to me that I had to accept. And I think she was strong. She didn't worry about yesterday. She didn't worry about tomorrow. She just dealt with right now. But she was a feminist, a feminist, a feminist. She believed in the strength of women. She believed in the importance of women. And she believed in the independence of women. She had respect for men. She had four sons and a husband. But she was determined that I was going to be an independent woman. And being blind was not going to be an excuse. And it really wasn't. And I and I think now this makes sense why you love and describe in the book the magical time at Easter one year and how this wonderful magical time reminded you of Wordsworth's poem I wandered lonely yes, as, a cloud. as a cloud and and I just would love to read the last part of the poem which I just loved and I teared up when I read the poem and I'm tearing up right now as you've been talking so I just wanted to share that with you but uh here it is for our listeners the end of the poem for oft 
oft when on my couch I lie in vacant or in pensive mood, they flash upon that inward eye, which is the bliss of solitude. And then my heart with pleasure fills and dances with the daffodils. Oh, what a poem. (laughs) It's so beautiful, Ruth. Oh, goodness. And I get it now even more now that you share this story about your mom. And with her help, you went to a regular school and were really the first student to be integrated into the public school system in Canada. Can you take us back to that time and what that was like for you? Things like, were the teachers helpful? How were the students? And are you happy that your mother placed you in the public school system in this way? First of all, people have to understand, I went to kindergarten in my local school, Dovercourt Public. And it was not the best year of my life because everything seemed to be visual. So I didn't learn a great deal, just frustration, but that's okay. I went to the School for the Blind in Brantford, which then was called the Ontario School for the Blind. And it was a residential school. That's a big topic nowadays, but it was a residential school. And I adored my mother and she adored me. It was hard for me to be away. It was very hard, but you know, I did what I had to do. And they decided in 1968 to, to integrate blind children into the public school system in Canada. And they decided to do it in, in Toronto where they had a big, you know, Toronto board of education and they could get the support and so on. Mm -hmm. So they chose eight children and I was the youngest of the eight in the headlines in the Toronto Telegram said eight years old, youngest of eight, 1968, blind girl comes to public school. And the other children, there were children who were sort of 10, 11 years old, and some of them were teenagers. But I was the youngest of the of them. And of course, my mother felt it was wonderful because we would be together. You know, it's tough to think of putting a six-year-old child on a train. Mm-hmm. on Sunday night, and then pick that child up off the train at Union Station on Friday night. And that's what was happening. Can you imagine a six-year-old on a train nowadays? Wouldn't I, be can't, I can't. You, you, were in that, you were in that boarding school. I want to just take the listeners back to this because it's so important. You were in that boarding school from age six to eight with 24 kids. And, yes. and the purpose was really to learn Braille and yes. to learn music and to learn all sorts of things. And, and I, I just want to talk about one moment where I have such an image of a few things in your book, and I don't want to give it all away because I want people to read Love is Blind and they must get this book. It's so wonderful. But the moment where everyone had their own bed and had their own little area and their own cubby, if you will, and their own shelf. And the other kids had a lot of toys and you didn't have much. No. And you were from a very modest family and you just had uh, your harmonica. Yes. And uh, and and not much else. And you longed, longed for a radio. Yes. And this wonderful Mrs. Greer in the in the church um, knew heard about this, and and it grieved her, and it pained her heart, just like it pained your mother's heart to to have you going away to this school, even though everyone tried to act all you know s- strong about it, as we do as parents, right? Like we're gonna you know um, look you know sort of like we're marching along and we can do this, but it still was very hard on the heart and one day you came home and there was this transistor radio yes what was that like and what did that radio mean to you 
I died and gone to heaven <laughs> because all the children in the school had radios because, you know, blind children listen to radio and they still do. It's still a big medium for us. And and they all had either most of them had little six transistor, little small ones. And Mrs. Greer bought me an eight transistor. <laughs> it was a little bit bigger and it had a leather case. And it was so posh and so wonderful. I think I probably kissed it. And I brought it back to the school. And next thing I was singing, Mrs. Brown, you have a lovely daughter. Or my mother used to sing, Mrs. Vallis, you have a lovely daughter. And so anyway, I had I knew every station on the dial. I could tell you every station on that. Dial. And still to this day, I could probably tell you every station on the dial. It was an AM radio. And uh, and in those days, 740 was not Zoomer. It was CBLT, CBC Radio. And uh, I listened to, oh, gosh, I loved it. I loved it. It was just, it was, it was freedom to be exposed to the world outside. And you had the biggest heart. Like, I'm trying to imagine a six-year-old. You've got so many challenges. You're away from home. You're a little kid. And it wasn't easy. And I, and, and I, and I, and you can read about that in the book. It was not, it was not an easy time. And yet, every child was responsible for their own bed. And yeah. you were very good at making your bed. You had the hospital corners down and everything, and you knew how to make it tight and neat and beautiful and fresh. So it would be nice to get into at night. But there was another child who had a lumpy bed and yes. this pained you tremendously. Oh, Can yes. you tell us, tell us about that? Me. Yes. I was speaking to one of the house mothers. That's what we called the staff at that time. And I was speaking to her. And as I spoke with her, I leaned on somebody else's bed and it was just a mess. It was all lumpy and the bedspread was pulled over, but it was all lumpy. And I said, oh, she didn't make her bed. And the house mother said, it's just fine. And I said, I'll make it for her because a little mishelpful. I'll make <laughs> it for her. And she said, no, it's just fine. And she took me away. Mm. And, you know, there was a lot of letting people um, do what they can and accept, accept that they, they didn't look for perfection. And there's a lot to be said for that. We don't want everyone to be neurotic, but we should strive for a standard. And they weren't so much that way. But anyway, I grieved. I felt terrible. I prayed, please, God, let that house mother make her bed, please, God. And I was lying in bed at night and I was grieved over the fact that that child was likely sleeping in a lumpy bed. Yeah, I, I, that's, I've always had sort of a, um, an inward desire. If somebody has a need, I have a desire to fulfill it. And that was where it started, I think, because I can still remember the girl. I remember the bed and everything. That, that makes me weep. I don't know. I just, I, I get that so much. And mm -hmm. uh, that here you were, you could have been thinking about yourself, but you were so outward focused that even with your own struggles, you were, you were besieged with worry about this, this other child. That just says so much about you, Ruth. Uh, do you think these two years at this boarding school in Brantford, Ontario, helped you once you got into the public school system, gave you sort of the groundwork that you needed? Well, I learned Braille, and that was essential. Uh, it was Braille is literacy for blind people. It's a very controversial topic nowadays, believe it or not, and that, that causes me no end of grief. But I learned Braille, and I, I think 
you know, as one learns things in any situation, as one learns things, one one accumulates more confidence in oneself. And that was probably part of what what happened there. Mm-hmm. But I think I probably would have succeeded whether I was there or whether I was mm-hmm. home because the influence mm-hmm. of my family never changed. And I was home on the weekends. So that never changed. But yes, uh, it was it were, there were challenges which are outlined in the book. There were challenges for me that uh, wasn't always the most happy time as residential schools are not the most happy time, mm-hmm. whether they're like the terrible stories we're hearing now or not. There, there are issues. You're not, I, no one kissed me goodnight. No one tucked me in and said, I love you. Like at home, my mother said to me every night until I left home at 36 years of age, permanently, she every night kissed me goodnight and said, I wouldn't trade you for a million roofs who can see now, no one said that in Bradford. Nobody tucked me in, nobody, nothing. And you know what? When you're six years old or seven years old, there's something lacking. You don't have that. And, you know, we pay people to take care, but we don't pay people to love. So there's the issue. But, you know, it didn't hurt me. Um, it didn't hurt me at all. But I was different than the other kids, as they'll see in the in the book. I was wanting to read while everybody else was wanting to play with Lego. And I like Lego to this day, but, <laughs> but <laughs> and reading has been a big, big focus. And 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 that's and listen, I'm I'm telling you, you can tell from the you know, great writers are often great readers, right? And so the fact that you've written this great book, I can see that you were you were a reader as well. You, you got faith and you got hope and comfort from many places. And I think one of them was the church. The church was a very, very important place for you and I think has been your whole life. And I think the faith that you have from the church helped you and impacted your life. How, how did it figure in your life? Because I think the church played a central role in giving you the faith that you needed. Well, I think... The church has helped me to express my faith, but I think my parents' faith is really the biggest influence. And we lived in a home where my parents read the Bible every single day. We said grace at our meals every single day, every single meal. But not only that, when my parents were dealing with us, they would use scripture, for instance, It says in the Bible, never let the sun go down on your anger. Mm. So, you know, you have five children and two parents living in one house and not a big house, three bedrooms. There's going to be conflict occasionally. (laughs) And my, my parents would not let anyone go to bed with conflict between ourselves or between us and them. So if, for instance, I was having a argument with my brother, one of my brothers, my mother or father would say, all right, now say you're sorry. And, you know, say, oh, but mom, I didn't start it, whatever. (laughs) And my parents would say, it's not about who started. It's not about who joined it. If you are in conflict, you are part of the issue and you both need to apologize. Say you're sorry. (laughs) And then (laughs) now shake hands and go to bed. Mm. We were, ne- and if we had had a conflict with them, my mother would say, "Okay, I'm sorry for whatever happened," and and well, you'd have to say, "I'm sorry," so that in our family, nothing was carried on to the next day. And to this day, we all live all over the country, but we're still family. And there's, my mother would say, "Peace in the family, peace in the family," and so that was a big that was a big part of it. But they used the Bible. 
to be the example for how we learn to live our lives and what the expectations were. And that's very important because we didn't have money. We really were hard up financially, but we had a roof over our head. We had a shirt on our back and we had food in our stomach. We don't really need any more than that. No car, no microwave, no dryer, a ringer washing machine, blah, blah, blah. But we had what we needed. And my parents would say, don't worry, don't have it today. The Lord will provide it tomorrow. So we lived that faith within our home. And then when I got into, you know, through our church and our the church was a big part of our family life as well. And that's where we get opportunities to, to share it. I got to, you know, play my guitar and sing in nursing homes and home for disabled adults. And, and I got a chance to to visit shut-in people at Christmas and, you know, lots and lots and lots of things to express oneself in a really positive way. So that's what the church was for me. That's incredible. We're going to go on a short commercial break right now. When we come back, we'll hear all about how Ruth went to London, England as a young woman, completely blind and on her own and all of the adventures that happened to her along the way. Back in a moment. Finding Your Bliss is brought to you by CREATE, Canada's leading fertility centre for over 25 years. CREATE is here for anyone struggling with infertility or in need of assisted reproductive technology to have children. CREATE is about cutting-edge science from highly skilled doctors. In unprecedented times like these, CREATE is about ensuring the safety of all patients and staff. CREATE has made important changes to protect you by ensuring social distancing, wearing masks, as well as screening before entering. So what about the bundle of joy that you've been hoping would come into your family? CREATE Fertility Center is here for you. Visit createivf.com to keep up with the latest changes and learn about CREATE Fertility Center's comprehensive care for every fertility journey. Keep safe and healthy during these challenging days, remembering that life is about moments that we create together. We are back and this is Finding Your Bliss on Zoomer Radio, AM 740, FM 96.7. And we're here with Ruth Vallis, author of this really sensational book, Love is Blind. And we're talking all about what it was like for her to go to London, England in her teens to study physiotherapy. I want to get soon to how you went as a young woman to London, England to study physiotherapy and the incredible strides and remarkable achievements. But I just wanted to say first that your mother was the one that was, I think, the, the person in your life that was your beacon of light. But there's been many wonderful women in your life who helped you along the way, such as a very significant person, Marilyn. Can yes. you tell us more about Marilyn and the power of women just working together and helping each other? Uh, Marilyn Calhoun was my grade eight teacher and at uh, Kent Senior Public School at Dufferin and Bloor. And she was uh, an English teacher primarily and head of the English department. And so she sort of um, really encouraged my love of poetry and she really encouraged me to read. And she used to have the students write a thought book every day. And she'd say, you know, things you're thinking about, things in the media, whatever you want to write about, but write something every day and get into it as a habit. And she said to me, I was 13 years old. She said to me, Ruth, you've already lived such a life. When you get older, you should write a book and you should call it Love is Blind. Oh. <laughs> so um, I am 
doing this interview from Marilyn's home. She's 90 years old, and I am currently a caregiver to her. We've been friends 48 years next week. Wow. Wow. And she was delighted. She has the book on her coffee table. Was delighted. <laughs> I think she's read it twice already. <laughs> that sued me, so all is well. I can't imagine how you were able to go away to London, England as a young woman to study physiotherapy with very little on your own, being a blind person in another country halfway across the world. How did you manage and how would you describe this really transformative experience? Probably ignorance because <laughs> the quiet spirit raised its ugly head. I I felt called to physiotherapy, which people can read about that in the book. I felt I was told to be to study. And so I, I just didn't really consider the greater picture. I, I had such a confidence in myself. I just felt I could conquer anything. Boy, did I learn that I could be conquered. It was, it was challenging. I arrived in bustling London. I didn't know anybody. And I was plunked in a school. I was delivered to a school. They gave me a key to my room. They told me my room was on the sixth floor, fifth floor. I was room 14. <laughs> and that was it. They didn't orientate me to the school. And although it was a school for blind and visually impaired physiotherapists, most people there were not totally blind. And there's a very big difference. Even having a little tiny bit of vision can make a very big difference. So here I was, they didn't orientate me to the school, they didn't orientate me to the neighborhood, they didn't show me where the shops were, they, they just expect me to get on with it. And uh, I was almost conquered, almost conquered. It was a very difficult moment in my life, which was very hard to relive as I wrote it, but I had to write it because we, what doesn't kill you make you stronger, it almost killed me. And, uh, but it taught me a lot about myself. It taught me that I can achieve, I can deal with difficult situations, I can conquer things, uh, but it was a hard lesson. And in the end, after three years there, I could have kept on living there. I had established friends, I had established a nice church I was going to, and, and, uh, and I'm still in touch with one of my lecturers who sadly now is, is elderly and palliative, but she was very delighted to read my book also. So she's uh, to Mary Begg. She's in the book also. I'm not going to give away this whole story, but there was a, there was a story in your physiotherapy training that was very demanding. And you also got some tough love, which I think made you even to a, into a better clinician and physiotherapist because you are and you've been described as loving and caring, but also someone who knows how to be the utmost professional. And I remember and love the story in the book where something disturbing was happening with the patient and you were very thin, very fragile, and you couldn't handle it. And one of your supervisors brought you into another room, stuck your head out of a window to get some fresh air, <laughs> basically gave you a, a one-two about how to deal with it. What happened? That was Mary Begg. This is the woman. Uh, she was the, um, the woman from the school who would come around and observe us in clinical placement, but she wouldn't announce ahead of time. So she could be watching us at any time. It's very disconcerting. And I was suctioning 
the lungs of a woman who was dying, who was blind and deaf. And so communicating with her was extremely difficult. And I was between the wall and the bed, and I was very thin in those days. And the people that I was working with, my supervising therapist, not Miss Begg, but the actual physio, said to me, oh, you have to stop. You have blood in the catheter. I almost, uh, the world was disappearing. I was passing out. I was sliding down <laughs> under the bed, literally. Oh, and dear. suddenly, Miss Begg appears, mm-hmm. throws her arm around my waist, drags me across the corridor. My feet hardly t- touched the floor, threw open a window, shoved my head out and said, pull yourself together. Remember, you're a professional. Get back in there and finish the job. <laughs> and I said, <laughs> yeah, yes, ma'am. I could hardly breathe. Hardly breathe. Yeah. But what great advice, what great advice, because it made you, I mean, you're, you're known in your field as one of the finest physiotherapists in Canada. And uh, I mean, we're going to get to a, a huge achievement in a minute, but I, I, there's so many great things in this book. I just want to tell the listeners that I love the wonderful advice that you got from Mrs. Winter about how to ex- answer exam questions, because you used yes. to get a bit anxious for an exam. And this is useful for everybody out there who is going to a job interview or writing an exam or doing an interview and so many, mir- a myriad of things. And you write in your book that her advice was, quote, read the question, take a deep breath, count to 10, and then reread the question, then answer the question the examiner has asked. And not the question you wish the examiner had asked. <laughs> oh, I just, I just love that. Another thing that you did that I think is giving you great and, and music. We're going to be hearing Ruth actually play for us later on the show. Ruth plays the harmonica. Ruth plays the guitar, and she's written an original piece of music on the ukulele that we're going to be hearing later on in the hour. But uh, one of the other things that has, that has brought you great joy is bike riding which I think you started to pick up at a little bit of a younger age when someone got you a tandem bike, a bicycle built for two. But you actually did a bike ride from Ottawa to Toronto. Is that correct? Yes, I've, I've cycled quite a bit. I cycled London, England to Paris, France. I've oh. cycled um, around southern Ontario. I used to cycle a great deal. Unfortunately, the the illness that caused me to go blind has really taken a toll on my body. And so it's very difficult now. But uh, yes, I, st- I first was introduced to a tandem in Brantford. And then when I was 15 years old and agitating for a bicycle, my mother bought me a tandem. And my oldest brother, John, used to take me mm-hmm. on it quite a bit. And he used to take me on what he called the smell tour of Toronto. And he'd say, mm-hmm. breathe deep, madam, the <laughs> fragrant linden bush and all this sort of thing. <laughs> He's a wonderful, sensitive man who loves nature. And so I did. But the trip from Ottawa to Toronto was because our outpatient department, physiotherapy outpatient department at what was then Hillcrest Hospital, now Toronto Rehab, was um, going to have to close because we were we were financially in debt. And part of the public health care system is that hospitals may not go in debt. So they were going to cancel it. And so one of my colleagues... Uh, uh, Katie London and I took my tandem and cycled from Parliament Hill to Hillcrest Hill, one hill of a trip, Hmm. to fundraise and raise conscience. We rode 500 kilometers in five days and we got full government funding and saved it. And that little outpatient apartment now downtown on University Avenue has about 20 staff and is a very significant um, outpatient apartment, but it would have been gone forever if we hadn't done it. I love the story 
about Air Canada, what happened on your way home from graduating in England and the warm reception you received from everyone at the airport. Can you tell us what happened? Like you had arrived, you had done it. You had graduated from physiotherapy. You had done extremely well. And now you were back and coming back to Canada to work as a physiotherapist. And and I love what the moment when you started working at Hillcrest Hospital and, and how arrived you must have felt. And, and you, you were even known as Miss Hillcrest at the hospital. But just tell me about that, getting off that plane at Air Canada. What happened? Well, I had traveled back and forth. I When the school is closed at Christmas and Easter and so on, you have to be out of the building. And so... Uh, I would travel home. So I was going back and forth in, in over those three years. I went back and forth quite a few times. And so the Air Canada staff, because I have to get special assistance, the Air Canada staff got to know me very well. So when I got to the airport for the last time, the woman behind the counter said, oh, Ruth, bad, going back for a holiday. And one of my classmates was with me and she said, no, Ruthie has qualified and she's going home for good. So. Apparently, Air Canada has a good communication line because they took me, the woman who escorted me said, congratulations, Ruth. And then when I got to the wait, the lounge where I was waiting, they said, um, uh, Ruth, we've um, changed your ticket and we're putting you in business class. Compliments of Air Canada. Congratulations. And then when I got on the plane, I was called up to the cockpit. You couldn't do that today. <laughs> up to the cockpit and the captain said, congratulations. And so everybody along the way had been told. And so it was really quite sweet. I was treated very kindly. What was it like that moment when you started at Hillcrest Hospital? That must have been such a feeling of I've arrived. Well, of course, before I got to Hillcrest, of course, the story is a little sadder because my first job, I was hired and fired without one minute of working. So people need to read about that. And then I worked in a clinic for a while, but it wasn't the job I wanted. And so when I got the job at Hillcrest, which was an inpatient hospital job, and I do need to explain to you that when I graduated in 1984, there were 300 blind and visually impaired physiotherapists employed around the world, but very few of them were in inpatient. Most of them were in outpatient clinics or private clinics because it's a much easier uh, environment to control. And so working in inpatients is much harder. So to be working in a major city downtown hospital on inpatients is very unusual, but it was my dream come true. And I felt, um, I really, I felt I'd made it. I felt freedom. I felt ecstatic because it's what I wanted is what I had. And I just, I felt blessed and I felt that I just had to pinch myself. What did your parents say about this and your family? Um, well, you know, do you have any brothers, Judy? <laughs> yes. Ah, <laughs> uh, you, you actually. Uh, I, I, I have to say, they admit to being proud of me, which is a very, very <laughs> lovely thing. It's a very lovely thing, and they have not been above calling for free advice either. Free isn't medical that, advice, isn't that wonderful? For many for many years, you didn't have a guide dog. You just walked with your white cane and you managed somehow and you were just terrific. 
but you finally had a guide dog to help you navigate the world. And I believe your first dog, your first beloved dog was Ruby. Is that correct? Oh, no, Sophie. Sophie and then Ruby. Yes. And now I know it's Darwin. Yes. Can you tell me about what what was the, what was that like to suddenly have a guide dog and what what and can you tell me about Sophie and tell me about Ruby? There is a great deal of freedom in having a guide dog because it's a pair of eyes. So hopefully if one is going to cross the street, the dog won't let you cross. If there's a truck going to run you over or a bicycle or some person on their cell phone walking along and not looking up, that's a whole other topic. Mm-hmm. That's a whole program, Judy. That's another, when you come back, we'll do that when you come back. <laughs> yes. But, um, and also there's so much impedimentia and especially now with COVID because there's so many little tables on the sidewalks and sandwich boards and fruit stands. And again, people not looking where they're going and so on. And the dog is really good at, you know, deking and diving around things and helping you. So there's a lot of freedom involved in having a guide dog. It's also a lot of work. It's also, it's also, you know, a, a cane one can fold up and stick in one's pocket and it's, it's, uh, inconspicuous a dog is never inconspicuous and i i i hasten to say there are a lot of people in our country from cultures that don't like them are afraid of them are suspicious of them and in the last more recent years i've had more issues than i wish i could but there's opportunity for education and i do my best to educate but um it's it it can be extremely helpful and uh, more than one occasion i think has saved my life so it's a blessing sophie sadly was an unwell dog and 19 months after i got her she died that was a very very sad time and then I got Ruby. Now, they say they match the dog with the person. Hmm. Uh, I must have had a transformation like Jekyll and Hyde because Sophie was obedient and gentle and calm and sweet. And she was a ladylike. And Ruby was a pistol. Sophie was a black lab. Ruby was a golden retriever. She couldn't be more different. She was a diva. She had an attitude. She had a chip on her shoulder. She was in charge. She didn't care what I said. It was what she wanted. She was a wonderful dog. Wonderful, wonderful dog. But she had a sense of humor. Now, Darwin. (laughs) Now, in between, I had AJ. Right. Who's now just a pet. He's half black lab, half golden. He's gentlemanly and sweet like Sophie. Now I have Darwin, who's <laughs> black lab, but he's just like Ruby. He's got an attitude. He has a sense of humor. He's too smart. I said to them, you know, I want a smart dog, but don't give me another one like Ruby with an IQ higher than my own. Well, that's Darwin. He's got an IQ higher than my own. So he likes to think, you know, I'm in charge. We're going to go where I want to go. And, and, and he's always lying there thinking, what can I get up to? Hmm. Yeah, there's a piece of paper. I think I'll tear it up. We need some. <laughs> Ruth, what advice do you have for people who are blind and have dreams and goals like everyone else? And also for people who are not blind, but are short-sighted in other ways and have dreams and goals and are stuck. What helped you the most? I think the first thing we need to acknowledge, and it doesn't matter who we are, it's never easy. Life isn't handed to anyone on a silver platter. There is no overnight success. There's only work. There's only effort. And by by putting forward effort and having success, there comes confidence. And I would suggest that it's worth the effort. 
I would suggest it's one thing that was said to me in the book, and it's very important, that part of being independent is knowing when to be dependent. Mm -hmm. And I think we need to um, do everything we can for ourselves. But when we need help to reach out, do it graciously and accept it appreciatively. And I think that's for everybody. Um, you know, there's lots of people who can see who are successful. There's lots of people who can see who are not successful. We can make excuses and we can blame other people. But at the end of the day, we are all responsible for ourselves and mostly responsible for ourselves. And we can, as my mother would say, if we don't succeed, we can't blame anyone else. But if we do succeed, we can thank ourselves. That's a good thing. It's a good place to be. Uh, but um, yeah, I, I would just say that there's going to be challenges. But don't resent them. Be prepared for them. Mm. And particularly if we're in a situation, and it doesn't matter. It doesn't matter if we are a woman, which it can be, is not a really a minority, but is considered such, or disabled or racially different, or religiously different, doesn't matter, doesn't matter. Um, there will there will be challenges. And sometimes women have learned this, I as a blind person have learned that sometimes we have to be twice as good to be accepted as equal. Mm -hmm. I'd say don't resent it, be prepared for it and say, all right, if I have to be twice as good for me to have you accept me as equal, stand back and be prepared for me to be twice as good. Hmm. You're a remarkable woman. What is bliss for Ruth Alice? Uh, I think it's just in the moment. I think one can be contented everywhere or one can't be contented anywhere. And for me, it's just to like be here with you and chat to you and talk about the things that are important to me, but to listen and learn from people, to listen to the birds and the breeze and water against the rocks. Just just everything is blissful. And to know at the end of the day, I'm not alone. And that God gave me the best mother he could have ever given me. Mm -hmm. So wonderful. Wow. Ruth, we're going to go on a short commercial break. More with Finding Your Bliss and Ruth Ballas and some of her original music when we come back. Back in a moment. Finding Your Bliss is brought to you by CREATE, Canada's leading fertility center for over 25 years. CREATE is here for anyone struggling with infertility or in need of assisted reproductive technology to have children. CREATE is about cutting-edge science from highly skilled doctors. In unprecedented times like these, CREATE is about ensuring the safety of all patients and staff. CREATE has made important changes to protect you by ensuring social distancing, wearing masks, as well as screening before entering. So what about the bundle of joy that you've been hoping would come into your family? CREATE Fertility Center is here for you. Visit createivf.com to keep up with the latest changes and learn about CREATE Fertility Center's comprehensive care for every fertility journey. Keep safe and healthy during these challenging days, remembering that life is about moments that we create together. We are back, and this is Finding Your Bliss on Zoomer Radio AM 740, FM 96.7. And we're here with Ruth Vallis, author of this beautiful memoir that I really couldn't put down called Love is Blind. We've been talking about it for the hour, and I encourage you to get a copy of this book. It's just incredible. And we were talking earlier about how music has played an important role in your life, Ruth. And I know that you have composed an original piece of music on the ukulele, 
and you're going to be playing it live for us right now, which I'm so excited about. Uh, and thank you. Can you set up this piece for us? Thank you. Yes. I, my mother and I used to write quite a few pieces together also. And, um, I love Hawaii. It's a gentle place and you can, one can certainly find bliss there. And I love Hawaii. And so I started, um, uh, learning about the language. And in Hawaii, they have a lot of words for God. Pele is the God of fire and they have the God of the sea and the God of the trees and the rocks and the fish, etc. When the missionaries went there in 1820, they, the word aloha means love and they taught them, uh, kua, which is the true God. And so aloha keakua means the one true God is love. And so I thought if I'm going to have a ukulele, which Marilyn bought me after we had been to the South Pacific, and I did a little jam session on the beach with some people there <laughs> with, a, with, a, with a souvenir ukulele pulled off the display. <laughs> <laughs> and she bought me one when we got home and I wrote this little song. Aloha, 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 God is love. Aloha, aloha, kakua, aloha, the one true God is love. As the breeze Cause the palm trees to sway. There's a message in their whisper. What do they say? As the waves crash upon the shore, there's a message that goes on forevermore. It is a Aloha, God is love. Oh yes, aloha, aloha, kekua, aloha, the one true God is love. Wow. That was so fantastic, Ruth. That was beautiful. I've been dancing in my seat. That's fantastic. Wow. I love it. I just love that. Thank you for sharing that with our listeners. I, I want it. Um, actually, I'm so excited people are going to be able to hear this because that's a real feel-good, pick-me-up, bliss song. Yeah. Yes, yes. Well, you can find bliss in Hawaii, I can tell you. Beautiful weather, <laughs> beautiful everything. Yeah. That was wonderful. Ruth, what is the best way for people to contact you and connect with you on social media? Well, uh, I am on Facebook, but also my website is Ruth Vallis, V-A-L-L-I-S, RuthVallis.com. And on my website, you can actually email me if one wants to ask me questions or share some of one's own experience. And particularly if they read my book and it touches them in some way and they want to share, I'm very, very happy to hear from people and, and to respond. So RuthVallis.com or I'm on Facebook, Ruth Vallis. And uh, if they want to, if you want to friend me there, I'm happy to, to be in touch. 
That's wonderful. And how can people get a copy of your fabulous book? Really, it's a wonderful memoir. It's so well written and it really is a page turner. I loved it. It's called Love is Blind by Ruth Vallis, V-A-L-L-I-S. How can people get a copy of your book? Well, they it's just about can get it anywhere. It's certainly available at um, Chapters Indigo. It is available through uh, my publisher, Friesen Press, and you can get it through Amazon. You can get um, uh, Kindle, uh, Kobo, just about just about anywhere that a person likes. You can and um, the uh, the Novel Spot Bookshop at uh, Humbertown. Uh, yeah. Lots of places, just about anywhere you can order it. But lo- any of the online in particular. But if you want to go into a, a Chapters Indigo or the Book Spot Novel Spot, they will have it right there, hard copy. So yeah, just go to my website. It lists all the places. You know, Ruth, I have to say this has been one of my favorite interviews and I've done oh, about three, 300 on the show. And, oh. and, and, you know, I see Siobhan, our producer, nodding in the background because she's agreeing with me. Um, I, I don't know. We've been in tears. We've been laughing. We've, we've done it all. You're really a remarkable person and it's a wonderful book. And I really want to thank you so much for being on our show today. Thank you for reading it. And thank you for having me. I, I feel blessed. So do we. Thank you. Each week we spotlight a singer, songwriter, or musician on the show. If you are a singer, please write to us at music at findingyourbliss.com. And if you're an author, artist, writer, or anyone who has found and is following their bliss, we would love to hear from you. You can write to us at fyb at findingyourbliss.com. I'm also a life coach. If I can help you in any way, let me know. You can reach out and contact me at findingyourbliss.com slash coaching. And of course, you can follow us at The Bliss Minute on Instagram and Facebook. I would like to thank my guest, Ruth Vallis, for being on the show today. It was so wonderful having her here. Thank you also to Meg Ruffman, producer Siobhan Kiley, senior editor Haley Allegia, intern Lauren Kaminsky, and audio producer Faz Causey. And of course, a big thank you to our sponsor, the Create Fertility Center, and everyone here at Zoomer. This show has been recorded by Zoom. We're going to close out the show today with a short meditation, and here it is. This one is actually called Enjoy the Journey, and it's written by Katie Kermitsos. And this week, our theme is new beginnings. You have the power to create a new beginning right now. Each moment of presence is an opportunity to reset, refresh, and restart. The nature of creating a new beginning indicates that we desire a new outcome. But the process of getting there is not actually about getting there. It's about giving ourselves a reason to evolve, allowing ourselves to be unattached to the outcome and to deeply enjoy the journey. So let's begin. Let's dance in the freshness of this new beginning, the place where your deep desires for a better tomorrow Fuel your attitudes and actions of today. The place where your dreams live vibrantly without the encumbrances of the struggles. The place where anything is possible. Breathe it in. And let its intoxicating energy relax you. And then grace steps into your dance, moving alongside you, swinging her hips and waving her arms. She whispers to you that there will be moments of pain, disappointment, and fear, 
and that she'll be here with you, forgiving you, reminding you that you're perfectly imperfect and worthy of dancing. And then possibility will arrive, putting her hands in yours as the melodies move you. She'll remind you that you have no limits, that you can do anything, and that it's all possible. And lastly, presence steps in and embraces you all. Be here, she whispers, and honor this dance. This music, your body, your ability to experience it all. Be here, beautiful, and enjoy every step of the path it has put you on. Namaste, beautiful. For everyone here at Zoomer, I'm Judy Lee Brack, reminding you all to embrace fresh starts and new beginnings and take one step closer to finding your bliss. This podcast is proudly produced and presented by the Zoomer Podcast Network, home of great podcasts like Marilyn Lightstone Reads, Idea City on the Air, and The Garden Show.